Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A fellow at the Hoover Institution, Victor Davis Hanson is a classicist and military historian who has published more than two dozen books, including A War Like No Other, his acclaimed account of the Peloponnesian Wars. Dr. Hanson's most recent work, The Case for Trump. Victor, welcome. Thank you. You write right here of Donald Trump that he is, and I am quoting you, Victor, vulgar, uncouth, and divisive. You also write that you voted for him. Casting that ballot, how much regret, how much cognitive dissonance, how hard was that for oh, you? Oh, I have no regret. It was very easy because the alternative was Hillary Clinton. And I did take him at his word that his promises would be largely kept or attempted to be kept. And then when I use those words in the larger context, I think I was comparing them to what? To what? To JFK's frolicking in the, the pool, to LBJ's exhibitionism, to Bill, I don't want to mention Bill Clinton. But I think we have historical amnesia about what presidents are. I, I would have liked him to be a sterling moral exemplar like Jerry Ford and Jimmy Carter, but I'm not sure there's any equation there between that type of character and dynamic leadership. Can all be Ronald Reagan after all, a sterling character and an effective leader. All right. Uh, how Trump won. So the case for Trump, you spend there are really a couple of cases in this yeah. book. One of them is the case for Trump. Yeah. But the other is the case for the Americans who voted yes. for Trump. Yes. All right. I'm quoting you here. The case for Trump. Voters in 2016, 63 million of them, preferred an, an authentic bad boy to a disingenuous good girl. Yeah. Explain that. Well, Trump was what he was, and he had no pretensions that he wasn't. So when he went to Fresno, uh, he went to Tulare, California. He went to Maine. He went to Alabama. He had on the same jacket, the same weird tie, the hair, the, everything. When Hillary did it, it was you all down in Alabama. And then she had a Harvard accent. When Obama campaigned, he had an inner city patois. As I mentioned, John Kerry put on duck gear when he went duck hunting. Mike Dukakis put on the helmet, remember? Yes, yes, yes. But he didn't. And that Trump Queen, was always the businessman from Queens. Queens. Queen's accent wherever he was. And the other thing about him was he had a, a strange way that nobody detected except the people who voted for him of conveying empathy. So he, he said, our, not Our you, country. Our vets, our workers, our farmers. I can't imagine Mitt Romney or John McCain who are supposed to be far more empathetic. And he went to, remember he went to West Virginia? I love big, beautiful coal. Contrast that, remember Hillary Clinton said, I'm going to put you out of work and shut down the industry. Obama had said the same thing. So there was a way that he connected with the deplorables, the clingers, the irredeemables, what John McCain called the crazies, in a way that we didn't really expect that he would, given his background. Mm -hmm. And then, so there's the, the personal authenticity, but you also draw out his agenda. Uh, again, I'm going to they also, again, I'm quoting the case for Trump, they, the 63 million people who voted for him, also preferred his agenda, which represented, quote, the antithesis to the Democratic Party of Barack Obama, which was increasingly candid in voicing socialist bromides. Yeah. So it's, it's, there are moments when I think that all politics comes down to that old Henny Youngman gag, 
how's your wife well, answer, answer compared to what? Yeah. So Trump comes across as authentic. Somehow or other, this guy from Queens, this billionaire from Queens, seems to be what he is. There's an yeah. authenticity that appeals to people in the middle of the country. And at the same time, the alternative is getting just unacceptable to us. Yes. Right? That's the argument? That's the argument. And uh, what we're seeing now with permissible infanticide or reparations or a green deal or a wealth tax or 70% income tax or Medicare for everybody or cancellation of everything. Let's cancel electoral college. Let's cancel ICE. Let's cancel all student debt. All of that stuff is a logical trajectory from the Obama administration. He was the one that took the party. Remember when he was elected, he had the most partisan record in the U.S. Senate. So that that's the antithesis to Trump. It was with Hillary. It's even going to be more so in 2020. And then he did something that nobody quite has analyzed. His, his agenda wasn't some crazy uh, alt-right. It was an 80% traditional republicanism. Yes, yes. Deregulation, lower taxes, repeal Obamacare, good judges, strict constructions. What was new, he looked at that electoral college and he tweaked four or five issues that the other 16 may have been for, but they didn't, they didn't do it. And that was... You can't have a sovereign nation with an open border. Right. You can't have immigration unless it's legal, measured, meritocratic, and diverse. That, that was a, a winning issue for those states. Then he said, if you're going to go overseas, translate tactical success into strategic advantage. It doesn't help you if you bomb Libya or Gaddafi out of power or you, you're bombing people in Afghanistan if it's not resolved in our interest. And then he said, China's not fated to take over the world. They're not the Superman. They have a smaller economy. They've got all sorts of problems. They are only strong because they're asymmetrical in their trade and will fix it. And finally, he said, you don't need a magic wand to restore the interior. It's not, these, remember Obama said, these jobs are never coming back. He right. said, they're not only going to come back, they're going to come back right away. And in large part, that was true. So that was a new message, but he wasn't the Antichrist Republican. He was a traditional Republican that took some issues, incorporated them within Republicanism, and then looked at Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Ohio, North Carolina, and said, you didn't come out for John McCain or Mitt Romney because there was something missing in this menu, and I'm going to be the person who puts it back in. And then finally, one time, sure, 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 it was a messenger, too because he was basically saying, I'm crude and crass, getting back to your quote at the beginning of our conversation. But he said, I'm not playing by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. If Candy Crawl, I'm, I'm you know, ad-libbing here, but if Candy Crawley in the second debate tries so to hijack Second it, debate with Mitt Romney. Yes, right. when she said, no, 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 Governor Romney, Barack Obama's correct here, he would have grabbed the mic like Reagan did. Right. And he's not going to say, as John McCain did, I will, I just don't want to mention Reverend Wright. So Trump was saying, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight, there's going to be a war room, I'm going to go after the, the left as they go after us. Mm -hmm. And they, nobody had seen that since Lee Atwater in 1988, with the tank commercial, the Willie Horton commercial, right. the Boston. When George Bush is running for re-election, yes. or running for election in he, 1988 yeah. to succeed. So, that was part, I'm not condoning it, or I'm not excusing it, or I'm not praising it. I'm just saying that at this point, a lot of people would come out of the woodwork, conservative, Reagan, Democrats, parole voters, I don't know what we call them, Tea Party, if they thought somebody really wanted to win. 
and that they wouldn't get out ahead of the candidate. There was a lot of people said, oh, I'll support, if I support a Republican candidate, they'll know, no sooner do I do it than they say, you shouldn't say that. Oh, you're too uncouth. Let's work across the aisle. Then the supporter has got the limb sawed off. McCain did that a lot to people. Jeb Bush, contrast Trump with Jeb Bush. Well, Jeb Bush said basically that I'm a sober and judicious leader. I have all the right requisites. I was governor. I'm from this dynasty. He's a great, nice person. He had some good ideas, but he said things. By that, the way, he'd been a terrific governor. I think his, his I think he, had, he, cut he was taxes too, and, and he was misrepresented. But, okay, all right. But I think he said illegal immigration was an act of love. Right. I don't think at the time that he ran, people wanted to go into Afghanistan, Iraq again. I don't think that they were into that adventurism anymore after Libya. I don't think you mean of, of uh, that they associated with his brother George yes. W. Yes. Okay. I don't think. I think the Bushes, the Clintons, everybody thought globalization, which is a good thing. It's a westernization. It allows people in the Amazon to have glasses, or penicillin gets to dark. Uh, dark islands, I mean dark in the sense they have no electricity or no right. civilization. So it's good. It brings people up. But it hollowed out the United States. It said anybody who has muscular or physical labor that can be Xeroxed overseas will be Xeroxed overseas. And that's a natural Darwinian process that's good for you because it makes us all more efficient. We get cheaper stuff that comes in and then you'll have to find, learn how to code or go to the fracking fields. And Trump said no. We got cheap energy, our electricity is cheaper than theirs, we've got cheaper national gas, we've got great workers. This, these, these were the muscles of America, they will be again. One more contrast with a Republican whom he defeated in the primary, and that's Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. I sort of, I can understand the argument as it applies to Jeb Bush, Marco yes. Rubio, they're, in a way they're, they're well behaved, they're yes. genteel, yes. and there was an, what people recognized in Trump was a fighter. Yes. But Ted Cruz was also a fighter. How he did, was. How did Trump defeat Cruz? What, what did he have on Cruz? Well, Cruz was the last man standing in the yeah. fight for the nomination, too. Yeah. He was the last man that Trump so, defeated. And that, that's not an accident. Mm -hmm. So the two people of that 17-person field, that right. were, as, you, as you're suggesting, who were the most combative and wanted to take the argument to the enemy, so theoretically, or uh, I don't mean actual enemy, but to the adversaries were Cruz and, and Trump. Right. The difference was Trump was a professional reality TV star. He made his money in repartee. Remember the first, I'll give you an example. The first debate, Rand Paul, who's a, I have, there's certain things I like about Rand Paul, sure. but he said, you're the nexus basically. I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing. You're the nexus between money and influence. He said that to Trump. Yes. Right. And, Trump looked around and thought, how do I get out of this one? Right. And he said, yes, I am. And you came up to my office and I wrote you out a check for $10,000 and we got along perfectly after that. Ted Cruz would have not said that. But that's what Trump, because you don't really say that about somebody. And he's basically saying to Rand Paul, you did something as unethically as I did. When you're supposed to say, neither one of us would ever do anything unethically. Right. But Trump, Trump was... This is a guy who actually wrestled in a wrestling mat, you know. Uh, uh, yes. And so his idea was, there's nothing I can do that is going to embarrass me. And, are my, and that was baked into his support with his uh, voters. All right. 
According to Victor Davis Hanson, Donald Trump's most enduring significance is that he understood those in between. The case for Trump. Elite on this, this is on the state of the yeah. country when Trump was elected. Elitists, not subject to the ramifications of their own policies, ruled from on top. The subsidized poor answered them from far below. Both those on top and the subsidized poor both barely disguised a shared disdain for the struggles of those in between. Explain that. Well, what I was trying to say is that almost every issue, there was a virtue signaling component by which the advocate assumed that because of his influence or power or superior wisdom or morality, he should be, as I said, exempt from the ramification of his own ideology. Take walls, border walls. Everybody's against border walls, but if you and I were to drive two miles out in Atherton, oh, we know what we'd find. We would sign the one people, gated community after another. Yeah. Board, yes, we can go up to Nancy Pelosi's estate. We can go to Mark Zuckerberg's estate, and but if, we can't get in. Yeah, no. If we were going to talk about cutting off water, uh, so that the fish could rehabituate the Sacramento or San Joaquin River. We wouldn't do it with Hetch Hetchy water that comes to this area. That's, that, you just don't do that. Uh, we all believe in the public schools, the bedrock of America, but not for my children. They're going to go over. Hey, I just want to back up. So the Hetch Hetchy, the, the, the water that's being used that we're in drinking, the Delta. That we're drinking right, right now. That comes from Hetch Hetchy. Yes. And no, no good liberal here in Northern California would suggest putting fish putting, in it. Putting fish in it. No. No, the, no, that's the, the only water to revive the fish population comes from the farmers. Yes, those in are the for Central people. Valley. Those are for little people in Fresno. Got it. And the same thing about private schools, the whole avenue. So he comes in and he says, that Trump comes into this great swath in between and says, people are lecturing and virtue signaling and using you, not just you know, economically, politically, or socially, but psychologically. By that, I think he meant, although he wasn't explicit, he was saying that, and we saw this with the college admission scandal recently, mm -hmm. that the people who are most likely to say, you have white privilege, you have white privilege, you have white privilege, have it themselves. And they point at other people that don't. So some person of the Oklahoma diaspora you know, here in, in the Central Valley. Yeah, in yeah. Bakersfield, who's the grandson of a welder or a son of a carpenter. He didn't have any white privilege, and yet he's told all the time he has white privilege. He'd be much better for his admissions to be one quarter Hispanic or half African American or any type of, of minority classification or of a larger white class. By class, I mean if he was wealthy, he could go to SAT camp, he could call people up. He could do what these people did. That was the the, the people in the scandal. Yeah, right. and, or they, if he had more money, he didn't have to do the tawdry avenue. He could go straight through the front door and say, here's $10 million for that building. Uh, yeah, right. So that's what he was trying to say. He was saying to these people, you're the forgotten people. You don't have any privilege. You're the losers of globalization. But you don't have the romance of the poor, and you don't have the connections or the culture of the wealthy, and they dump on you, and they dump on you, and they dump on you. And they talk about swapping you out, bringing immigrants in. I'm speaking literally now. Yes, yes. And so that was a resonant How message. How did he get that? The guy That's was the raised, the yeah. guy was raised, now he was raised in Queens, yeah. but he was raised in a pretty wealthy he enclave was. in Queens. Yes. 
And so there are a couple of mysteries here with Donald Trump. His, his parents were wealthy. Yeah. As he was, from the moment he was born, he yeah. was, it's not as if they made the no, money no, as he was growing up. No, no, you're out. absolutely he right. He was born into a rich family. He went to an Ivy League school. Yeah. He had one chance after another to turn himself into a pinstripe-wearing, yeah. wingtip shoe-wearing, very urbane, polished, rich yes. man in Manhattan. Yeah. And he did turn himself into a rich man in Manhattan. He took his father's yeah. real estate empire and and continued it and built, yes. put up buildings before he went into the casinos and then before he went into television. He was yeah. a builder. But he was always the guy from Queens. And somehow or other, how does the guy from a rich guy, how does a rich kid from Queens, which is what he is, yeah. a rich kid from New York, identify because with the grandson of a welder in Bakersfield? Because how does he was that always an outsider and he wanted it to be successful. And he, all, he found out very quickly that he could build a skate, skating rink in Central Park, or he could redo a hotel, but he was never going to be fully accepted, given the way that his father w was kind of shady, they thought, a Manhattanite would say. He wasn't a premier builder. He, was, he had a lot of tenants, apartment buildings of poor people, that accent, outer borough. And then the second thing is that he was a builder. He wasn't, he didn't make his money. If, you look, if we look at the top 20 fortunes in America, I, I would imagine 75% of them are high finance, media, and high tech. He actually right. built things. So that meant that he needed to work with unions. He needed to know who the cement workers were, the tilers, the carpenters, the electricians. And people would say that he would, as he walked around, he actually liked those people because he understood that he couldn't do what he does without them. And that, so it, I think there was an empathy for those people in a, in a way. At least he could talk to them. Whether he was sin sincere or not, I don't know. But I do know that he developed a, an ease of being able to communicate with people from all different classes and that they did like him. I talked to a New Yorker, pretty uh, important person, I guess. I asked him if you had an A to F list in New York, and they'd probably do, where would the Trumps be? And it would be... F. F. Right. D E. Not an A not an A list. And I don't think he would he may have been hurt by that, but I don't think it ultimately he'd care. Okay. So he was an outsider and he felt that the East Coast, West Coast, globalized coastal elite were talking to themselves. They had a certain Marcus of Queensbury rules, Republican of acting and campaigning. And people in the middle said, you can be amoral and be sober and judicious. It's not very moral to have no 3% GDP for over a decade. Right. It's not very moral to go overseas and take us and not translate that optional intervention into a strategic victory. It's not very moral to have um, high minority unemployment. And uh, he hit on something. I don't think there's, I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to be crass and you're a good leader, but he was just saying the two greatest people that we know as far as our sterling characters are probably Jimmy Carter and Jerry Ford back to back. And they were, they were fine men and ineffective presidents. Yes. All right. It doesn't mean that there's a connection, but it does show you don't have to be a saint to be an effective leader. Okay. I want to depart for a moment from Donald Trump yeah. and talk about you. Yeah. You are a professional academic. Yes. You got a doctorate as a young man by writing a brilliant book on ancient Greece. You've produced book after book after book. Your book on the Peloponnesian Wars is a, is, was acclaimed 
everywhere it was reviewed, even by people who, whose politics differ from yours. And yet, modern American academia is almost monolithic in its revulsion for Trump. Yeah. And one professional academic, Victor Davis Hanson, writes the case for Trump. Okay, let me quote you. I grew up and still live outside a small town in California's Central Valley. In 1970, we didn't lock our doors. In 2018, I have six guard dogs. What did it mean to you living, continuing to live in Selma, that small town south of Fresno, and what was it that happened in Selma between 1970 and 2018 that made you Oh, how about this open? week? So this week, okay. this week, the last uh, four days, there were three miles from me. Somebody was driving. He made a U-turn in the middle of the road and killed somebody who happened to be Mexican-American. And then he got out of the car and left. Four miles north of town, somebody ran a stop sign and hit a trucker, almost killed him, and got out of the car and left. Last night, uh, two miles from me, a man on the bicycle was shot and killed. I ride a bicycle, I used to, around my area. So what I'm getting at is when you bring in a lot of people from southern Mexico, the poorest part, and most of the people coming in our area are from Oaxaca, and they're not legal, and they do not speak English, and they don't have skills, and they don't have capital, and they don't have a high school diploma, then and you do it in mass so that they're not with Punjabis and African Americans and whites so they can integrate. We know what makes the melting pot work, measured, meritocratic, diverse immigration. Then you're going to have a socioeconomic problem and you're going to need a lot of state help, education, law enforcement, uh, legal help to give the semblance of parity and it's not going to work very well. So what happened, and you combine that with globalization, and what I would call latifundia, were corporate agriculture, or economies of scale and vertical integration. So what I'm saying So is when you grew up, I just want to judge, when you were growing up, you were which generation at that ranch? You were- I was number five. Fifth generation yeah. uh, Swedes yeah. at that ranch in Selma. Yeah. And you, your, your uh, mom and dad ran, what, a couple hundred acres? Uh, 120 acres. 120 acres. And we so all worked on it. But here's the point. And there that would have been a fairly standard yeah, size. It, was, it looked like a, a checkers board. Every little Family square. ranches and family the farms. The Kasigians were on one side. The Onos were on the other. The Israelians, uh, the Hazelhoffers, the Arnst. Uh, it was real diversity, by the way. Mexican-American, right. uh, Armenian-American, Japanese-American, Punjabi-American. Okay. And since that time, two, thi nobody. They're gone. Two, two, two things have happened. One is globalization yes. has made it impossible to run a family operation economically. Is that correct? Yeah. I rent my 40 acres out to a wonderful man who has 12,000 acres of almonds. He's a wonderful guy, but he has 12,000 acres of almonds. And... Uh, so the family operation is so just So what happened gone. to all these houses? Well, all these houses are still there, but they're rented by people from Mexico. So one of across the street from me, uh, the Norteños gang just had a shootout. And it was wild. And I mean, I'm, I'm not, I won't mention it because I don't want to be shot, but I have three neighbors that are in gangs. So that's what happened. So the second thing is that you get this huge influx, largely, yes, yes. substantially illegal. Yeah. And nobody voted for that. Nobody voted for that. That takes place, uh, uh, to the contrary, that takes place 
in defiance of the and law. Remember, there was right? no principle to it. So when you go back and see Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and Chuck Schumer railing against illegal immigration, it was still 100,000 people a year, and they were worried about undercutting wages. Right. And when Cesar Chavez was trying to organize agriculture, he went in down this, here to, in California. Yes, he went down to the border with clubs and tried to stop people from coming because he felt that illegal immigration would drive down wages. And he was right. So all of this influx came and wages went down for workers. And as part of globalization, employers liked it. And the Fruhoff trailer went, the Upright Harvester went, anything, the Del Monte can we went, they were all shut down or went overseas. The middle class moved out. The, corp, the people bought all the land on top, very medieval in California, and then very cheap labor came in from Mexico and our South America. I have no problem with that, but I really get angry about what changed Schumer and Pelosi and Bill Clinton was the idea there's now so many people, 20 million perhaps, are Ivy League studies, that and the second generation- 20 million in California, no, or in no, the country? Na nationwide, that came here illegally, right, and right, right. their second generation, in some case, third generation. Right. And they're going to vote Democratic, so they flip California, they flip Nevada, they flip New Mexico, in from a red to blue, or purple to blue state. So it was a political decision. It wasn't based on the merits. Uh, Sanctuary cities became the gospel when they felt that that was a winning political issue. Okay. But it wasn't based on a principle that people coming in should be illegal. The name of the town again is Selma, your town, where five generations of Hanson six now have lived. Selma's remaining native poorer whites, ethnics, and second and third generation Mexican Americans who would not or could not leave live in a town that has been transformed. Those changes were mostly a result of the laxity of immigration enforcement and import of expensive labor, as you've just described, and globalized trade policy, as you has, which you've also spoken about. Their once prosperous and stable community did not deserve to erode. Something bad happened to decent people through no fault of their own. And because you live there, you saw it with your own eyes. I did. And another thing I saw is that, and this is a heresy to say, that some of the people who got hurt the most were Mexican-American second and third generation. Yes. Because in their neighborhoods, this influx went into their schools. And suddenly, they didn't have very good advanced placement because a third of the student body couldn't speak English. Or suddenly, a Nortenos or Serenos or M13 gang member would make fun of a second generation Mexican American because he could not speak Spanish. Or he'd call him a term in Spanish for a sellout or Uncle Tom or something of that nature. And so when Trump came along, for all of the sensational racialized tension that we were supposed to think that he, that he harbored for Mexico and Mexican Americans, 30%, he did as well as Mitt Romney or John McCain, and I have a feeling in the next election he could get 35 to 45 percent of the Hispanic vote. Now that just seems crazy, but when you talk to people on the ground, they'll say things like, I got very ill of, I got very tired of this family of gang members from Oaxaca, so I called ICE up. They deported them, and now they're calling me on a cell phone from Oaxaca and threatening me. What am I going to do? I hear that. Or 
a person just said to me, uh, did you, I was in Walmart, and they said, did you read about this guy who just ran a stop sign, hit a truck, and then he took off? I said, yes. He said, same thing happened to me. These are not Atherton residents. Atherton residents or Malibu residents want that system to continue. I mean, the, I shouldn't say that that's unfair. They want the, the, the uh, factors or the ideas or the principles that can lead to that to continue. But the people who really suffer. And they, they will pay no price. Yeah. Oh, they have walls. They put their kids in prep schools. They have guaranteed jobs. Yeah. But the people who suffer the consequences of those ideologies are often Mexican-American. And so I have a feeling that Trump is, I guess what we're saying is that he's trying to do something that nobody really thought you could do in America in the age of identity politics. He's trying to redefine it as class differences. And this is from a multi-million, billion dollar guy in New York. He's trying to say to African-Americans, I got your wages up for the first time, 3% uh, increase in working wages for the middle class. I got minority unemployment down to record lows. Illegal immigration is not in your interest. It drives down your wages. Abortion's not in your interest. Abortion is much more common among Mexican American and black uh, unwed mothers, and it's not, and it's wiping out that community. And we don't want that. We want you. We need you. That's a pretty strong message that we haven't heard any politician, or much less a Republican voice. And so I think that even though he can be, quote, coarse and crude, uh, there's a certain populism that cuts across identity politics lines because it's the old class argument mm. that you're the forgotten people. So you, you spent some time here. Of course, you, you published, you're writing this book as he's coming up on two years, two and a half years. So there's still time in the first term, let alone any yes. question about whether he'll be reelected. So yes. any reckoning has to be partial and so forth, yeah. but you think he did a pretty good job yeah. domestically. At home, I'm quoting you, the case for Trump. At home, the economy in Trump's first 600 days was better than at any time in the last decade. Massive deregulation, stepped up energy production, tax cuts, and talking up the American brand produced an economic upswing as evidenced by gross domestic product growth, a, a roaring stock market, and record low unemployment. So two things to be observed about that. One is that's a very compelling domestic record. Yeah. And the second is that's completely conventional Republican or conservative politics. I think it is. A lot okay. of it is. Except for the, we don't know the effects because he hasn't lowered the trade deficit, but he's put allies, rivals, and I should say enemies right. on notice that they're going to have to reduce their trade surpluses and, and trade reciprocally. Okay, so, a, and now foreign policy, again, the case for Trump. Yeah. Abroad, monthly incidents of Iranian hazing of U.S. forces, which were going on yeah. in the previous administration, have remained non-existent under yeah, Trump. they're non-existent in the Straits of Hormuz. They're not trying Just, to shoot missiles at a carrier, or they're not trying to cut in front of a destroyer, or they're not trying to hijack a, a boat. So the question is, why? Because they're scared of this guy. Because they he's he what? Business. Because he's unpredictable. Uh, and they have no idea what he's going to do. If Donald Trump, if tomorrow, the Secretary John Bolton calls up Donald Trump and says the Iranians just put, uh, shot a missile right across the bow of the, of, you know, the George Bush the carrier. carrier. I don't know what he would do. You don't know what he would do. And neither do they. And they don't know. And so all the things he's criticized in foreign policy of being unpredictable Unpredictability is an advantage in diplomacy. North Korea? Well, I mean, he, I was 
taken back when he said Little Rocket Man, but then Art, if you read those serial ghost-written Art of the Deal books, it is to act unconventional, to scream and yell, but always to have in the back of your mind that you're going to ask for 70, 80, 90 percent of a deal, and then take 55, and then praise your, your interlocutor. So no sooner did he do Little Rocket Man than he was saying he wrote a love letter to me, and he's a great guy, and the left went nuts. They hated him when he said he was, when he used Little Rocket Man. They hated him when he said Kim Jong-un was a good guy. But what they didn't get is that's how he, Trump tries to, to deal, to be unpredictable, to go back and forth. But the real question is, have they curtailed their testing of missiles and nuclear devices? I think they have. And they have. Uh, Israel, he moved the American, excuse me, mm -hmm. I have to, we have to state this correctly. It has been a matter of American law it has. that the embassy should be moved from yes. Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and Donald Trump is the one who simply did it. He fulfilled yes. Yes. A, a, a statutory requirement that Congress enacted, what, over a decade ago. So he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, but he did it in conformance with a law duly passed yes, he did. by the United States Congress. Uh, what he has done off his own, though, is issue a statement recognizing Israel, Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Yes. Shaking up the Middle East a little too much yeah. here? Uh, well, he got out of the Iran deal, and he said that the Palestinians would not be getting money channeled to the UN from the United States, and basically in 1947, 46, 48, there were 30 or 40 million refugees. There was Jews that were refugees that were kicked out of the Middle East and sent back to Israel. There were 13 million Germans that walked back into Germany. None of those persecuted, whether they're Volga Germans in Russia, none of those persecuted groups today are called refugees. Right. So Trump came in and said, I, I don't understand. What's the difference? And so he, he did all of the things that everybody who said they were pro-Israel were going to do. And then this is what I think, it's a, there's a tragic nature to this. As soon as he had done them, the people said, well, he has his fingerprints on those issues and I don't want them now. So a lot of the people who had supported these, and I had read, I mean, a lot of the never Trump right, had said, we gotta move that embassy. We gotta get out of that Iran deal. Gotta get out of that Paris Climate Accord. We gotta just recognize reality. The Palestinians idea of a refugee is it, all of a sudden, Trump is too mercurial, Trump is too brash, Trump is saber-rattling, Trump is unprofessional. And I guess it's style over substance. I don't know what creates this schizophrenia, but we're in a very strange time where people, the 10% of Republicans who didn't vote for him or the never-Trump elite, they've basically said all of the issues or most of the issues that I embraced for most of my life, I can't do it anymore because Trump's for them. But So we, the argument of your book is a, that Trump understood millions of Americans who'd been effectively forgotten or overlooked even by Republicans. Yes. And B, that as it turns out, that is not all that he did. Yeah. That whereas many Republicans thought, finally granted, maybe he's seen something, maybe he's established a connection with the voters that the rest of us couldn't, but he doesn't know what he's doing, it'll be a mess. And you're saying that's not the so. No. He has put together a very impressive, substantive record. He has. That he is has, your argument. I don't think somebody, I mean, I can't think of a better Secretary of State and Mike Pompeo. He's had two great national security advisors with uh, eight, uh, Mr. I won't get into the Flynn. I have feelings on that, but H.R. McMaster and John Bolton. 
he's got good appointments. But most importantly, Jim Mattis, at defense. Jim Mattis, our former colleague at Defense, what he was basically saying is the post-war order was pretty good, but when we created it, there was no German miracle, there was no Japan Japanese miracle, Europe was destroyed, there was no Russia was destroyed, China didn't really exist as an economic power, there was no Jap Japan Inc., there was no tiger economies, there was us. Mm -hmm. And we could afford to take the hit. We could run up deficits, we could supply the world, and we did that for 70. We intervened here, we intervened there, we kept the world order, we kept patents, we kept copyright law, we, we st made it possible to travel, to communicate, to ship, to trade, all within the aegis of American diplomatic and military budget and taking a hit with asymmetrical trade because we were so rich and the world was flat. It was a wonderful thing we did. All Trump said was, I'm not going to get rid of NATO. I just don't quite understand why this EU economy, which is about the size of ours, bigger, they can't spend. Yeah, they can't spend a measly two percent of their GDP on defense, and I, I can't understand why Japan and, and and Taiwan and South Korea might want not want to help. And I don't really don't think that, you know, 75 years after World War II, I got to subsidize a 71 billion dollar trade deficit with Mexico, a 65 billion one with Germany. They don't seem to be particularly fond of us. That was just heresy. I mean, people just said, he's destroying NATO, he's destroying the post-war order. He's just saying, I'm updating it. Victor, here's an argument that you'll hear from the left, but also from the never Trump mm -hmm. right. And I think I'm doing, this is the nasty thing to raise, but, I, uh, but you deal yeah. with it in the book and yeah. you've been getting hit with this on the book circuit. So. It's the racism charge, yeah. all right? And here we have uh, Gabriel Schoenfeld, who's a, f a former Romney advisor. Yeah. He's writing in the Bulwark, quote, racism is America's original sin. By the way, he, he cites Trump's remarks during the Charlottesville mm -hmm. incident, and then he cites Trump, this was during the campaign when he questioned whether a certain federal judge would be mm -hmm. able to render a fair yes. opinion because he was a Mexican. I think Trump said he was a Mexican, he meant Mexican-American, yes. but still, he questioned his ability to, his, his impartiality because of his ethnic background. Okay, and then Gabriel Schoenfeld writes, racism is America's original sin, yet with a drumbeat of racially charged remarks emanating from the White House, Trump has been setting the nation back to a darker time. Mm -hmm. Hansen's mm -hmm. treatment of Trump's odious lifelong record in matters of race is sophistry in the service of a genuine evil. Yeah. He should be ashamed of that remark Gabriel Schoenfeld said because for two reasons. One, he didn't read the entire text of what he said in Charlottesville. What been, Trump said. Yes. He right. may have been sloppy. He should have understood the uh, climate, the landscape, the geography of racial discourse. But he did say there's this group and there's Antifa and then there's a good group who has a right to protest. And there's this group, and he didn't break down the percentages, and there were white, awful nationalists. And he said, I don't like those people. Read what he said. Read and the transcript. Then there were other people that were good. They were good on, and these are the people who objected to the toppling of statues. In the case of Judge Curiel, I said in the book that I thought you shouldn't, my mother was a judge, you shouldn't impair or you shouldn't attack uh, the efficacy of a judge, number one. Number two, 
I live in an area that's 90% Mexican-American. When I talk to people, I say, do you know Joe? And they will say to me, yeah, he's a Mexican guy. They don't say he's a Mexican-American. They, right. they don't call me a Swedish-American. They don't call another guy an Oklahoman-American. They say he's an Oklahoman. That's just the way it is. Right. And Trump should have known uh, you don't supposed to say that publicly, but that's what everybody does. Number two, Judge Curiel was a member of the La Raza lawyers, so when Ch uh, Trump clumsily said he's in a Mexican group, he is. Right. And I don't think any judge would want to be a participant in the National Council of the Race. And if I'm wrong, then the National Council of La Raza had no reason to change their name two years ago. Why did they change it? I didn't, I didn't force them to. You didn't. They said, you know what, we don't want to be in something called the National Council of the Race. So they change it to UNIDOS. US. United. United. And remember, and I mentioned this in the book, and Schoenfeld knows that, that word came from Franco Spain. It was reintroduced into the United States after it got. Which word? Raza? La Raza. La Raza. Right. I'm a Latin professor. It's come from Radix. It doesn't just mean the people or the tribe as they say it does. It means a racial component. Yes. Franco and Mussolini, two Zs in Italian, brought that word in to say if you're a Spaniard, and you speak Spanish, and you live in the Iberian Peninsula, you're still not Spanish unless you've got racial purity. And that's where the Chicano movement picked it up in the 60s. And finally, finally, Mr. Schoenfeld should remember where we are uh, in the political discourse. Joe Biden said, uh, and I will collate what Joe Biden and Harry Reid said about Barack Obama. He said he's the first candidate that can speak without a Negro dialect. Joe Biden said he's... Biden said that of yes, Barack Obama. Barack Obama. And he said he's clean. What does that mean? We've had a candidate that ran for president. I remember Barbara Jordan. There was no more articulate, uh, brilliant speaker. But to say that Barack Obama was the first time, and that both Reid and Joe Biden said that. Uh, Joe Biden went in and said, they're going to put you all back in change. You think that a, a proud African-American community would even allow that to happen? Who, they, they're not, their freedom is dependent on their own initiative and U.S. law. But to say that and pander racially is true. Bill Clinton said, you know, he was quoted, he said Barack Obama would have been serving us coffee. So what I'm getting at is that I got to, when Trump went into these racially charged arenas, he shouldn't have said anything. But if he's going to say something, what he says should be looked at the transcript of what he actually said, and then what is the allowances for slang, for ad hoc, repartee, I don't know what it is. But he didn't say, as Barack Obama did, they of a white community, they cling to their right. guns, or he didn't say of his own grandmother. So She's a typical, typical white person, or his personal pastor Personal pastor of Barack Obama, President of the United States. This right. is, I'd like Mr. Schoenfeld to explain this to me. Why did he say, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, I can't talk to Obama anymore because dim Jews won't let me speak to him? And he had a long history of anti-Semitism. Why did Barack Obama ha allow himself to be photographed with Louis Farrakhan, an absolute racist and anti-Semite? So if we're going to get down and uh, right. adjudicate everybody's pedigree of everything they've said and everything they've done, let's just do it. I'll be happy to do it. I think it would be great. And I'll criticize Trump, but I will also criticize Joe Biden, and I will criticize Hillary but you Clinton. Criticize, so the, your argument is that at a time when racial pandering does take place, yes. 
Trump is guilty of making mistakes, of speaking loosely, but he is not a racist. I don't think he is. I, I think that when he went down, I'll give you an example. When he went into Palm Beach, all of the powers that be did not want him to build that Mar-a-Lago country club. And right. one of the reasons he did is Trump didn't really care who came into it as long as they were wealthy. If you were Cuban-American, if you were Jewish-American, Trump loved you. In fact, the more money, the better. And I don't think his critics realize that Trump is a plutocrat. Money is the standard by which he judges success and failure, not race. You can criticize that, but it's... it's, it's he's not a racist. He's not a racist. Victor, <clears throat> Trumpism, is there a legacy? Is there something of permanence building here? The state, now I've got to read a couple of longish quotations, but they set something up that's important. You not surprisingly, you being you, you deal with important matters here. The state of the Republican Party before Trump, as you write in the case for Trump, the idea of protecting customs, traditions, and the continuity of a broad landowning and small business middle class had been essential to classical republicanism from the Romans who built the republic to England's working class citizens who resisted European revolutions. In such a conservative tradition, the hallowed, and vibrant middle class was more grounded than the often self-indulgent rich and more careful and commonsensical than the poor. You're not talking about Republicans yet, you're talking about the conservative tradition that reaches all the way back to the Roman Republic. Now, among Republicans, this is as Trump comes along, there was no longer a viable social and cultural conservatism of the sort outlined by Edmund Burke or embodied by Ronald Reagan, himself a self-made man from the Midwest. Okay, in Republican dogma, nothing was static, nothing sacred. The quaint idea of a sixth generation family farm, like yours, as something of intrinsic value to grounding regional society depended only on how wise each generation was in adapting to market reality summed up brutally the Republican position meant that for the market to enrich society, there would have to be winners and losers. Yeah. I, okay. I, so, it's, I, all of that is, is mm. actually quite movingly yeah. put, and of you being you, you're, the historical oh. illusions, this is all very, very powerful. But here's what it comes down to, maybe. What it comes down to is Trump saying, the Hanson family farm has value, mm -hmm. I grant you that, so I will now deploy the coercive powers of the state in behalf of the middle class, of small business owners, and of rural Americans. And once Trump says that, and if that becomes the Republican position, then the difference in principle yeah. between the progressives and the Democrats mm -hmm. who have their interest groups, the teachers unions, the urban poor, and so forth, there's no difference in principle. They have their interest groups, mm -hmm. and Republicans and conservatives have their favored yes. groups, and it's just slugging it out every four years to see who's going to be able to grasp the apparatus yeah. of the state and deploy it on behalf of their interest groups. Well, we, what Where is the national interest in this? Okay, well, you, you see the argument. You see the yeah, argument. I do. Okay. You're, you're describing the EU and France. It's a controlled economy, and it's got anemic growth, and it, it impoverishes everybody in its effort to, cre 
to preserve these provincial towns and but lifestyle. It pre but it, and it does, though. It and does. It does. French agriculture is still yes. alive. And here the was the idea in the United States that we get 3% GDP by not doing that. Yep. And Trump comes along and says, we're going to get 3% GDP, and I'm going to deregulate, and I'm going to push tax cuts, and I don't care how many wealthy people. That's what he did. Right. But along with that, I'm not going to control, turn us into France, but I'm going to say I'm going to force or jawbone or persuade companies that shut down for a, uh, to go outsource or to offshore or foreign companies that don't play symmetrically. I'm going to, to and I'll give you an example from a personal. So I was farming, it was $1,400 a ton, 1982. A ton for raisins? Yes, I was farming. In 1982. And okay. I was farming a 120-acre farm. And all of a sudden, the EU was on the horizon, and the Greeks got subsidies. So they were telling German bakers and Dutch bakers, if you buy our raisins, we're going to be part of your community. Let's start these. And they got about a four or $500 subsidy. So they're undercutting you by 30%. Yes, so nobody bought raisins, and the domestic market was not a big enough for things. So the price went from 1400 to 400 And that meant that everybody within... In the early, all in the early 80s, in the space yes, of a couple of years. 83 to 86. And this was during the Reagan shakeout, Paul Volcker, get rid of the stagflation. Okay. So everybody was destroyed. I mean it. I saw people kill themselves, I saw alcoholics, I saw fam my family w would eventually go broke. Okay. I talked to some people from the Republican Party and they said this to me, and a, a, a person from the Raisin Board from Washington, this is good for you, Victor. I said, why is it good for me? You're going to be more competitive so the persons who survive will learn how to make $400 raisins and, and, and then they won't be able to sustain that that subsidy and one day Greece will go broke. They were kind of right 30 years later with the EU and then you'll be more, you, uh, the consumer will have cheaper raisins. And I said, actually the consumer I doubt because the, the middleman will take up the profit, we'll all be dead when, you know, and the only person that can, can make it on 400 is vertically integrated that has packing and trucking and can subsidize the actual farming loss. Which is, Which the way is just it, what happened. That's exactly what happened. But what I'm getting at is, <clears throat> you could have had a balance, a little bit of balance. It destroyed the entire community. It, it wiped out families. People left. I, I, I saw things that I, I, they're still not, I wrote a book about it, Fields Without Dreams. And I don't think that that uh, creative destruction at all costs needs to be the, the mantra of the Republican Party. They can say, we, only, we know free market economics is the only thing that works, market capital. We're going to do that. But we understand the dislocations that are involved. And when they are involved, we're going to pay uh, psychological attention, cultural attention, political attention to the losers and make sure that they're not losing. We're not going to write off the middle of the so United you States. Accept, so, 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 so you accept the markets. Yes. You accept that there will be winners yes. and losers, but you're going to help the losers. Yeah, I think the Republican Party basically said the Democrats have uh, a monopoly on helping people who are victims and we'll just make the economy better for everybody and all boats will rise and we'll win. But they hadn't won. In five of the last six elections, they hadn't won the popular vote. They hadn't won 51% right. since 1988. Right. 
This is why they were winning at local and state. They won a thousand offices during Obama, but they couldn't win at the national level because they nominated people like Bob Dole, and I, I love George W. Bush, but they nominated the Bushes, and they nominated, uh, I mean, he did win, he didn't win the popular vote once, and they nominated John McCain and, and Mitt Romney, and it, the message that was transmitted to Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin rural Minnesota, rural Illinois, was that you guys are losers. And you know what? I think a colleague of mine in National Review said, the answer is get in a pickup and go frack. Just pull up stakes. That's the good American way. Go, go east or go south, young man. I understand the logic behind it, but it didn't have to, it didn't have to come off that way. And they didn't, they didn't get it. They thought themselves, he, Trump is so crass, he's so crude, he's so uncouth, there's no way in the world that he will appeal to these in a way that, that's John Kasich's voters, that's Scott Walker's voters. And I, I had written a column, I said, this is ironic, he's gonna be outpopulist those two guys who are really populist who came from the middle classes. And he did, because they were not voicing those Somehow Donald Trump's message is in some way, it's the same message as Ronald Reagan, vote for me, I'm one of you. Yeah, I think it is, and I think that's what, I, I wrote the book to do two things, to tell the deplorables and the irredeemables that there was a logical case historically and analytically for their vote, and two, to tell people on the left and right, just put away your prejudices and your stereotypes and ask yourself how a person for the first time in American history without political or military experience, one, without calling up the Council on Foreign Relations, without consulting the Hoover Institution of the Brookings, and what does that say about a person's empathy and credentials? Uh, it says a lot. It means that people that were coming out of Yale Law School or Harvard Business School or Harvard Law School and were praised for their erudiciousness and the, their erudite speech and their sober and judicious comportment and their resumes, they couldn't get 3% GDP. We couldn't win in Afghanistan. They just, we couldn't restore the middle. I'm not saying Trump will do all that, but that was what the message that I was trying to get at. It's a paradox and irony. I still don't have the answers completely after writing the book. Last question, Victor. Trump is tragic hero. Yeah, well, the case I've, been, for Trump. I've been criticized for that. Clint Eastwood's inspector, Dirty Harry, Dirty Harry Callahan, cannot serve as the official face of the San Francisco Police Department, you're talking about the movie here, any more than Donald Trump could appear presidential in the fashion of Barack Obama. But Dirty Harry has the skills and ruthlessness to ensure that the mass murderer Scorpio will never harm the innocent again, close quote. So you are arguing from drop from Dirty Harry and from High Noon and from Greek Shane, myth. And Sophocles, Ajax. Sophocles, They're Ajax. They're not all the same, obviously. I tried to get as many different archetypes as I could from history and literature. And George S. Patton yeah. of the Third George Army. George S. Patton he, and he Curtis LeMay. And what I'm saying is that in Western societies, consensual societies, they reach periods of crises where the established norms, not, I'm not talking about doing something illegally or unethically, but the established protocols cannot really marshal itself against an existential threat. So then within their ranks, there are people who they would never consult in times of leisure and peace and affluence that come to the fore. If we didn't have George Patton on the Third Army, we would have not got 
to the Rhine almost in September. If Curtis LeMay had not run the B-29 program, it would have failed. If Shane had not ridden in, there wouldn't have been uh, the, a sodbuster community. Jack Palance would have taken over the whole thing. But the very solutions that they offer and that can be successful come with a baggage of an outsider, an uncivilized, and uncouthness that as they become more successful, the community for the first time has the luxury to say, you know what, GDP's pretty good, unemployment's pretty good. I wish Trump wouldn't tweet so much. I just don't, I don't feel comfortable with that. I said that was the last question, but I told a lie. This is the last question. The case for Trump, he's going to pay and you say he's going to pay. Trump will end in one of two fashions, neither particularly good, either spectacular but unacknowledged accomplishments, followed by ostracism when he's out of office and no longer useful, or less likely, a single term doing to, due to the eventual embarrassment of his beneficiaries as if his utility is no longer worth the wages of his perceived crudity. He wins his second term, but at the end of that, he's gone and ostracized. Yeah. Or he might not even win a second yeah. term. He may be driven from office yeah. in 18 months. Yeah, I said that it was less likely that he would not win. I think he will win. He's at a, his polling where Barack Obama and Bill Clinton were at this time, he did better in the Senate and the House than both of them did. His polls are about, as I said, about the same. He's running against a weaker a, agenda than Hillary Clinton's. The Democratic Party is yes. even and now farther he, to the yeah, left. They're farther to the left, and he has a, a record. And the Mueller investigation, I think, for all practical purposes, is over with. But that being said, even if he is elected, I think he will be, he's not going to be invited to a post-presidential funeral cadre. He's not going, the next president's not going to say, you know, I called up George W. Bush in his 80s. I called up Barack Obama. And I called up Donald Trump for advice. It's just not going to happen. And that's partly because of the way he is and partly that uh, he did things that you were not supposed to do. It was almost we'd rather not be successful and fail or be static in a particular way of comportment, accent, behavior. And I think that paradox also explains one final thing of the tragic hero. It's Sophocles' Ajax is whines all the time. Why didn't people understand I was the best guy after Achilles? Shane kind of looks around and says, it's time I got to get out of this place. Trump wants to, he's obsessed all the time with why doesn't he get credit? You know, he'll tweet and say, great GDP. Media doesn't say anything. He'll even say things like, if, if I was a Democrat, Melania would be the new Jackie Kennedy. And the tragic hero can't quite fathom why his record of success is never, uh, is never given the proper recognition. Because to recognize that, they would have to look at themselves and say, I'm not part of the community that I tried to help. And one of the reasons that, and I'll finish with this. So that, he's an outsider even now. Yeah. What, one of the reasons that we do this is Trump's success, whether we like it or not, is a referendum on the status quo credentials of a president and the class that produces presidents and the class that produces wise men and experts. And what Trump is really doing, whether he knows it or not, is saying, all you guys that get up and get on a tractor every morning, all you guys that work in a shop, all you long distance truck drivers, I, have th I think you have a lot more expertise and common sense than a guy with a bunch of letters after their name.
PhD, MBA, and that's a very scary idea. <laughs> Victor Davis Hanson, fellow at the Hoover Institution, classicist, military historian, and the author of The Case for Trump. Victor, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you.